the average company in the Russell 2000 has roughly 30% of its capital structure in debt and uh, the other like two thirds or 70% in, in equity. So for a bit, effectively, they finance their business with $1 of debt for every $2 of equity. And so I think you know, in crypto, we effectively have a market cap of a little less than a trillion that's completely unlevered. It's, it's, it's one dimensional capital structure if you think about you know, governance tokens as equity. And so it's almost as if crypto markets have not used every tool in their toolkit to optimize their, their cost of capital today. Bang, 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 bang. What are we talking to today, dude? I mean, we should be talking to Plump with that intro. I haven't heard anyone say bang, bang. <laughs> Uh, the days of working. Uh, that, yeah, man. Yeah, miss that, that guy. man. Anyways, yeah. uh, today we are talking to also a, a longtime friend of BlockWorks, uh, Ben Foreman. Ben is uh, great, like ex-TradFi, came from TPG, was at TPG on the credit desk, I think, then was at KKR. On, KKR. Then, I think yeah. TPG, then KKR yeah. on the credit desk, and then left KKR in 20, maybe 18 or 2019, founded Parify, uh, the founder of KKR kind of seeded the fund, Henry Kravis, uh, and he's just had an incredibly impressive run. Um, and they've built like one of the best firms in crypto. And this episode was great. I think it like tied home, tied together everything that we've been talking about, like uh, permission, DeFi, like that, the potential there, um, fixed rate, lend and borrow, under collateralized loans, like we talked about it all. So I thought this was, this was one of my yeah. favorite episodes of the season. I thought it was cool too. Maybe it would even just be, if you're tuning in for the first time listening to this episode, like this is yeah, where we are kind of in the season, right, is we, we mapped out the death of CFI, you know, new renaissance to Tushar Jain uh, over at Multicoin. He kind of, we connected this thesis of, okay, a renewed interest in DeFi, maybe debt, debt native markets on DeFi with, with a boom instead of uh, innovations in token distribution. So this, this you know, not, not only do we get the, a, a renewed interest in DeFi, but that could actually lead to a big boom. Then we talked about specifically the fixed rate Unlock right now. We only have variable yields in crypto, and we talked about what and uh, what the unlock might be in terms of actually getting fixed rates. We just did an episode on options, right? Options and how they lock in those fixed rates, and then we also talked about structured products and uncollateralized lending. So where we are in this this current season here is basically like, or the next question that we have to ask with Ben, and we got so much more than we even bargained for, was basically who are going to be the issuers of this fixed rate debt. So we got into that question with him, and then he we kind of led in this very interesting direction of KYC fi and permission DeFi on this episode as well. So that's kind of where we are in the season. And yeah, this was, we got even more, uh, more bang for our buck than we bargained for. Wow. Do you like that alliteration? Bang our buck that we bar- bargained for in this episode. Bang yeah, for the buck good. than we quite bargained good. for. Yeah. Nice work. Uh, nice work. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump in. See you on the other Shall side. We? Let's jump in. See you on the other side, folks. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. We have longtime friend of BlockWorks, Ben Foreman. I'm joined by Mike Ippolito per usual. Ben, welcome to Bell Curve. Thanks. <laughs> Excited to have you here. Uh, ben, I want to actually start, we're going to dive really deep into like, who are the borrowers? We've been talking all season of Bell Curve about like uh, under collateralized lending, fixed rate lend and borrow, and like kind of what the next area of DeFi could look like. I actually want to start in traditional capital markets though, because you have this credit background coming from KKR and from TPG. What do like what are some of the learnings that you've learned from the traditional credit markets that maybe you're that you see in DeFi? You're like, oh, this clearly is going to exist, but it doesn't exist yet. I'm just curious to see 
to get your take on how you see credit in capital markets versus credit in DeFi right now? So I think there are a few big things that are missing. Uh, one is term debt and longer maturity debt. So most, uh, most borrowing in DeFi is perpetual borrowing. So rates change block by block. And, uh, you have, that doesn't allow you to really like lock in a liability for a long period of time, which is a big issue. Like most, most companies in the world, if they're investing in a project, like they're building a bridge, they're building a factory, they're building a school, that may take years to build and years to generate cash flow to pay them back. And so you need long-term liabilities to plan. And the, just as context, like global fixed income markets are roughly $125 trillion. And about 80% of that have maturities of longer than a year. Mm-hmm. So certainly like we need longer durations in DeFi than we have today. And then we also need uh, term debt. So that's one one major uh, one major area among among many others. Hmm. So why why walk us through exactly why that is, right? Because again, something that we've touched on in previous episodes is this need to be able to lock certain things, and we've got all variable debt in crypto right now. Options and kind of uh, the the market for interest rate swaps is how you lock in fixed rates. Why is a term structure really important? That longer term. Well, I, I think that fundamentally people want certainty, right? Like locking in a rate for three months is three months is a long time in crypto land, but to the extent we want to actually connect to the real world, we need, um, we need a a longer, we need to be able to not have to rely on refinancing our, our debt after three months. Because if you borrow for three months when things are good, um, and that debt comes to maturity, you may not be able to refinance. And that could ultimately cause you to be insolvent. And we actually, I mean, just recently, a few months ago, this was top of mind when uh, you had kind of three arrows causing contagion across crypto credit markets. Uh, you know, if you had an open term loan with a desk like Genesis or Galaxy or any of the other big uh, lenders, they were saying, hey, please return our capital. Um, but if you had a, a fixed term debt where they couldn't call, call it back, you know, you could, you know, rest assured that, you know, you could buy time to effectively repay your debt. And so really that's why, that's why it's so important. That's why, you know, the U.S. government issues 10 year bonds, 30 year bonds. It's why most high yield issuers are issuing five to 10 year bonds. Most municipalities are issuing 10-year-plus notes. Um, same with same in the mortgage market. I mean, most you know the most common duration on a mortgage is 30 years, and mm. uh, most of the fixed-rate attempts in DeFi are still too short. They're still you know okay, let's lock in a rate for one month, three months, six months, but that's still far too disconnected from the duration that you see in in traditional credit markets. Mm. So why is that? Why do we have such short durations in crypto as opposed to if like there is a, an equivalent of the Toyota Camry, right? In financial, it's the 30 year fixed rate mortgage in the, in the US, right? That's a super popular financial product. Everything in crypto is such short duration. Why is, why is that? I think it's partly a function of uh, just this market being uh, very immature. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if you think about it, uh, 
the de- demand to borrow at long rates maybe hasn't really become relevant until recently. I mean, part of the reason for that is uh, there was really no demand to borrow long term previously because why issue debt when you could just sell equity or sell tokens, right? Like any company, every company is trying to optimize its capital structure and uh, keep its cost of capital as low as possible. And it's no different for uh, a DAO. And so when equity prices are high, sell equity because it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's cheap. Um, but in today's market, uh, you know, with token prices depressed, uh, you know, if to the extent a company or a DAO believes in the equity value or the value of their governance token, they wouldn't want to sell it at today's prices. And now they'll kind of turn to, to, to credit as, as an alternative. I think the other, the other issue were uh, rates in DeFi. So you go back a year ago and the risk-free rate on Compound or Aave was high single digits, low double digits. Uh, today, it's significantly lower. But when rates were high single digits, low double digits, to get someone to lock up capital for five years or 10 years, the, sh- the slope of that interest rate curve uh, was going to be was was going to be very steep, and so it, it it didn't really make sense until this market environment, and so that's why I think we we really haven't had a need for it, or there wasn't demand for it until until this recent sell off occurred. Mm. Yeah, I I really like that framework of just there there wasn't the demand to to borrow, right? Like you basically had the main use case, right, for taking out for borrowing in crypto thus far has been really short term is a very degen type product market fit, right? Where you're basically leveraging uh, either you want to earn like some short-term yield or you wanted to like go long something while maintaining price exposure to the underlying asset. But you didn't have the way like a company might think about, you were kind of just getting into this this idea of capital structure, right? Which is I want to borrow at the cheapest cost of capital possible. And that's how sovereigns tend to think. That's how corporates tend to think. So maybe we could kind of get into that use case, but I'd actually love you uh, to maybe pull on your KKR background and just give us a little bit of a lesson of capital structure, right? When people use this phrase like capital structure, walk us through what that means and then kind of talk us through the two different forms of financing, which are debt and equity financing. So everything in the world requires capital to build, Mm. Uh, whether it's a company, a piece of infrastructure or a a protocol or a DAO, they all require money. And uh, the game of finance is optimizing your cost of capital uh, at the lowest level where you're not over levered, uh, but you're paying uh, the lowest amount possible. Because why pay more for financial capital than you need to? Um, it's, it sounds obvious. Uh, so as it relates to companies, companies will raise some combination of equity, uh, convertible notes, preferred equity, and debt to do whatever they need to do to grow their business. And within, within debt, there are, so, there are a number of different types of debt. There's secured debt, there's unsecured debt, there's senior debt, there's mezzanine debt. And all of these different uh, stakeholders in a business have a different priority in that company's capital structure uh, and have claims on different parts of the business. Uh, and so this is like really how how the uh, the traditional financial market works. And just as context, there's 
roughly the same amount of publicly issued debt in the world as publicly issued equity. Uh, and uh, the average company in the Russell 2000 has roughly 30% of its capital structure in debt and uh, the other like two thirds or 70% in, in equity. So for a bit, effectively, they finance their business with $1 of debt for every $2 of equity. And so I think you know, in crypto, we effectively have a market cap of a little less than a trillion that's completely unlevered. It's, it's, it's a one-dimensional capital structure if you think about you know, governance tokens as equity. And so it's almost as if crypto markets have not used every tool in their toolkit to optimize their, their cost of capital to date. Hmm. Ben, why? Like when you look at, um, I feel like a lot of folks think of debt as like something that maybe a big Fortune 500 would it, uh, would would issue, and that like startups maybe don't use debt as much. But I feel like I actually feel like startups, like non dilutive debt financing, is becoming more and more popular, even in the startup markets these days. Why has that not hit crypto yet? Like why is it? What, what why do we have that relationship? Like basically, what is what is missing? I guess. Yeah, I, I think that. You know, most DeFi, you know, DeFi was, is two years old. Most DAOs have started in the last year and there's really no reason to issue debt because token prices were expensive. So sell tokens. Um, and debt, debt would have been expensive, uh, because DeFi yields were high, but now DeFi yields are very low. So I think that was one, one concept. I think the second is, uh, there, there really haven't been that many teams building products in this category. So there may be a small handful of teams that are, are just now coming to market with products uh, that allow DAOs to, to issue uh, or debt-like instruments. Uh, but you know, I, I count you know, 65 to 70 teams building decentralized perps or decentralized options and you know, 50 plus teams building um, you know, money market style competitors to Ave and Compound and a similar amount building AMMs, but very few have focused on on this particular category to date. So, uh, um, so, so I think it's we're, it's a bit of a, a late mover. And then I think the final point is, you know, we can get into this more, but I, I think that the what debt looks like in to a DAO may be different than what debt looks like to a company, and I think to some extent, lenders may want to look at look to protocol earnings. Uh, as a source of repayment, almost like a royalty right, as opposed to just a direct loan that's repaid at maturity. So I think there are some design characteristics that need to be sussed out before we really get to product market fit. Can we go a little bit deeper? Explain what exactly you mean by that. Yeah. So I, I just think about, you know, a typical high yield bond that let's say, you know, you have or, or an investment grade bond that Tesla issues, they may issue, you know, five year bond at 3% coupon. And every year, every year, they make an interest payment to lenders. And then at the very end of that five year period in 2027, they repay the principal. And those bondholders basically have a generic lien or claim on the assets of the business. And there's, you know, the CFO of Tesla is stroking the checks every, every year, assuming it's an annual coupon. 
I think in uh, the DeFi space, what we may end up seeing is something that looks more like uh, a royalty right, where if you think about a DAO that's cash flow generative, like you know Uniswap generating five hundred thousand dollars of daily earnings, or actually maybe Uniswap's a bad example because the fee switches off. But let's say Sushi, uh, you know, I imagine an instrument where I like let's say Sushi Sushi is uh, X Sushi is generating you know, $50,000 a day of earnings. Uh, if I were to lend, say, you know, a million dollars to SushiDAO and be guaranteed block by block that I'm getting repayment along with an interest rate as cash is coming into the DAO, uh, that would be more palatable for me because I wouldn't have to take risk that a DAO has to go through a governance vote to make an interest payment or to refinance debt at maturity and so I think I think for that reason things may look a little bit different um, than you know just trusting that a DAO will make you know will make interest payments. Mm. Does that give it a different? That's really interesting that you say this because we uh, on one of the previous interviews in the season we talked to um, uh, the guys from Maple Finance and uh, Notional Finance and Teddy from Notional brought up this idea of you know one thing that's very possible in crypto that's just straight up not possible in you know, TradFi is this idea of, you know, money going towards certain things, right? You can lock in on a block by block basis reward. So, I mean, that, I mean, we were actually even talking about it within the context of, okay, let's say you issue a loan to a company, like the Blockworks was going to take on a loan. We'd say, hey, we're going to use it for like additional personnel. We're going to use it to like fund this conference and maybe we need uh, add some marketing or something like that. Basically, you're when you give, give us that money, you're trusting Jason and I to do that. Uh, whereas right now you can actually remove a dimension of that risk and say, hey, these dollars can only go, go towards thing X, Y, and Z. And then this is another way to feel even safer as a borrower, right? Where at the end of the loan, I don't need to worry about repaying the principal, even if things are going well in the business. I can actually see those payments start to flow in at a more regular basis, which is just really interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I also think you could you, you can structure products that resemble revenue shares. So when Block when Blockworks is selling tickets to its next conference, you could structure some sort of note where 30 cents of every dollar goes to repay my revenue share until I make, you know, 1.5 times my money. So I think the design space for what you can do uh, you know, with crypto structured products is obviously much much wider, much broader than what you could do easily in TradFi. Mm. And um, I, I think that's actually like pretty exciting. Yeah, which gets into the second part of the programmable loan, which is like, not only can you program into the smart contract that you would basically be using protocol revenues to spit off and pay back the loan, but you can program it on the other side so that, hey, I'm taking out a loan and I'm only using it to to spend on these things, right? So it's it's like both sides of the loan are programmable, mm. right? It's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other the other interesting feature set that I don't think has been talked about a lot are loan covenants. So most loans have uh, reporting covenants by a company. So if their revenue or their EBITDA drops below a certain level, the loan is in default. Mm. And so there could be, you know, we could see features where um, these loans reference on-chain data, whether it's TVL or 
um, you know, volume or protocol earnings. And to the extent that certain metrics aren't hit, um, you know, the loan would be in default and, and would accelerate in, in some way. Um, so I think there are other, you know, the, the programmability kind of comes in, comes into top of, is top of mind here. Relative to traditional finance, like everything is reported via paper and financial statements on a 45-day lag to quarter end, whereas here, you know, you basically get real-time monitoring and loan covenants, which should reduce risk at the end of the day. Mm. I'm actually imagining the playground that that opens up to like just the arbitrage and the crazy strategies that are going to get run. If, if this becomes widely adopted, right? Like one of my favorite, you know, Matt Levine breaks this down like very normal language, right? But there was a whole trend a little while ago, basically of hedge funds using credit default swaps, right? Basically to say, hey, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We want you to actually go into breach on this covenant because we have the other side of a credit default swap, right? Yeah. It will basically kick back to you whatever we get from the insurance of the credit default swap. And actually, you could make sort of an argument that worked out well for everyone because the financing was actually cheaper for the company that got like they would get more from their kickback from the hedge fund than they would have from, uh, you know, whatever, you know, sort of debt agreement they had in place before. <laughs> but it just the the level of, I am just interested to see if we do open up this design space in DeFi, just how creative this stuff really can get. Uh because it'll be nuts, I think. Um, let me let me ask. So, so, so Ben, do you think that there will be like a protocol that is built that does not exist yet that basically is like a loan covenant protocol, and you can put in place like it helps you facilitate these loans and like some covenants that might exist would be like the debt yield ratio or like the DSCR rate, like DSCR or like LTV or like the LTC, like just different covenants, and it's all just programmable and it goes through this protocol. I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I think that, you know, we'll have yeah. some covenant light debt and we'll have some debt that has covenants. Uh, but I imagine, yeah. you know, and I imagine, you know, we're going to be, we may be living in a world where, you know, we're talking about the relative value between, you know, the 2032 Uniswap 10% bonds or the, you know, compound. 2028 converts and one may have covenants and one may not. And so I, I, I think that uh, there'll be, there'll be traditional credit analysis as we see like different types of products come with different types of covenants and different types of structural protections. Hmm. Yeah. Ben, can we just storytell for a second? Cause you guys actually underwrote one of the first like Dow Dow issued debt things with, uh, with, uh, who was it? Riv uh, Rivendow, uh, via Porter finance. And I think it was your credit fund that underwrote that on-chain convertible note. Can you just like tell us some, I don't know if that was the first one that ever happened, but can you just tell us some like learnings and, and maybe the story? Definitely. So it's to, to our knowledge, it's the first one that's, that's ever happened. And I think it is somewhat of a window into the future. So as, as context, uh, Ribbit, Rivendow decentralized options protocol, uh, had uh, you know a, had a desire to borrow money, and in their treasury they only had the RBN tokens, which were not eligible collateral on Aave or Compound, and so they used uh, mm -hmm. Porter Finance, which this decentralized bond issuance protocol, uh, to do that. And so effectively, what the deal was is they put fifteen million dollars of RBN tokens into a contract as collateral. And they borrowed $3 million of stable coins against it. And the, uh, the rate uh, that 
the stable coins uh, got paid via this bond was set via an auction. So there were a number of participants bidding and it was structured as a Dutch auction. Ultimately, the way this bond was structured is it was a six month bond and it was issued at 97 cents. It was a zero coupon bond. So you effectively make three points over six months. So six, roughly six to 7% as you include compounding. And you had a claim on this RBN collateral. And now one of the interesting things here, and actually this touches on an issue for DAOs when it comes to borrowing is they don't want to wake up overnight, you know, overnight and find out that they got liquidated. Uh, so what was interesting about this ribbon DAO bond is there were no liquidations. So let's say the 15 million of collateral ends up becoming $2 million. Like it goes down, you know, 85%. Well, you have a $3 million bond and you have 2 million of collateral. That bond may start to trade at 60, 70 cents on the dollar at an implied recovery value, but there was no, there were no liquidations associated with that bond. So I think that's actually quite quite a good user experience for DAOs to not have to worry about getting getting liquidated and be able to use you know this you know a bespoke collateral type that's not available on, on compound and Aave. So anyway, this this bond was fully subscribed. We did participate, um, and uh, you know what was interesting is or is ultimately Porter Finance ended up shutting down and Ribbon repaid its debt a bit earlier than. Um, than planned, uh, but the mechanics around the bond issuance was was fascinating. It actually worked really well, and I think it was quite practical for for all parties. You said it might be a glimpse into the future. Why do you Why do you think that? I I, I think that other DAOs are in similar position to to Ribbon. Mm. Um, they have governance tokens in their treasury uh, that you know they can't easily borrow against. They can't sign a contract with an OTC desk because they have no uh, manifestation in, in like in the real world. DAOs entering into contracts is 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 not straightforward, and so they're really forced on chain to borrow. And uh, a product similar to the one Porter used, I think, is was was quite effective. I mean, they were happy with it. I think the participants in the round were happy with it. So. Uh, I, I imagine other kind of small and mid cap DAOs will will have have the same same desire and need down the down the line. Mm. The I remember thinking one because one of the you know I think the risk the risks that we're exploring in this thesis that we're talking about this season is just like when this actually is going to like a lot of these ideas like make a lot of sense but just when are they going to happen basically and when we talk about you know debt financing for DAOs the it's basically been a unanimous like. Yes, we think that this is going to happen at some point, but the question is, when is it going to happen? And I think in addition to like, I want to get into regulation in a minute here, because I think there's a different regulatory implication when we're talking about debt versus like selling tokens, um, which I think is important to get into. But also the reason why it didn't necessarily make sense for DAOs to issue debt is because what you want if you're issuing debt is like steady, predictable cash flows, right? So that's still a decent headwind for issuing debt. But one of the reasons why maybe it could happen sooner than we all think is because I think like a lot of the founders that I've spoken to, and I assume probably you have a similar experience is that like the yield farming method of growth worked really well on the way up, 
but it really sucks on the way down because then you're basically relying on diluting yourself to generate growth. And as the token fault, like when tokens are falling, people just sell the tokens, which means you need to give more and more of your tokens away. And it's just really negative enforcing feedback loop. And when I looked at the ribbon thing, I thought it was a really elegant solution because you basically looked at your treasury and it was a really easy way to get liquidity on, you know, what you had in your treasury, as opposed to like this doom loop of just giving rewards away. So that, that's how I kind of saw, I don't know, was that like basically the motivation or what, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think exactly that. I mean, their, their token, you know, had traded down significantly. They didn't want to use the RB, they didn't want to sell more of the RBN token right. if they didn't need to. Yeah, exactly. Um, can, can you um, walk us through, like, I know regulation is a big part of this, right? Debt, uh, like a lot of what... There's a lot of gray area still to be fleshed out in what really constitutes a security, right? On the token side, that's kind of being deliberated and that's using the Howey test. I think maybe for tokens versus uh, for debt, like traditional debt instruments, like we're talking about, it might be a little bit more kind of black and white. Walk us through like what are some of the regulatory implications of credit or debt being issued on blockchains? I mean, I, I think that's spot on. I think I think if a DAO is issuing a bond or a convert uh, that's a security on un almost unambiguously. And, uh, you know, I happen to be a, a kind of permissioned DeFi bull. And I think permissioned pools are really the way of the future. So I, you know, I ultimately think that as you know, there will be kind of permissionless debt issuance by DAOs, some DAOs will geofence, you know, non, you know, us users, et cetera. But I think the majority of debt issuance on chain will take the form of permissioned pools. Ben, is that why, um, like Porter Finance, I think Jordan ended up shutting, did he yeah. shut down Porter Finance or at least they shut down their bond issuance platform? Like how much of that was because the regulatory side of things versus the competitive nature of like rates offered in TradFi right now uh, versus like just the lack of institutional fixed income? It was, it was mostly a regulatory uh, consideration given you know, if you're if you're running a platform to you know allow debt issuance on chain, you're effectively acting as a broker dealer, and there are a number of other like regulatory implications around that. Uh, I think the other the other kind of thought, at least from from Jordan, was that the market size, at least today, is is not enormous. Uh, in that, you know, if you look at uh, who would be issuing these bonds today? You know, it's not like we're going to have Bitcoin bonds or Ethereum bonds or, or layer one bonds. It's going to be mostly at the application layer. It's going to be mostly bonds issued by DAOs. And the total market for governance tokens today is 50 to 100 billion. So you assume that, let's say it's 100 billion and you assume that for every $2 of, 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 you know, governance token, there's $1 of debt. That's 50 billion of debt. And if they're taking a small cut of issuance, and even if they're capturing 100% of the market, you have to kind of squint to really see that being a home run outcome. Uh, so that I think was the other was the other was the other factor in kind of the decision. Hmm. What do you, what do you think if you had to guess the size of let's say it's 10 to 15 years from now? What do you think the market size of or like activity in permission DeFi versus permissionless DeFi? Like, how do you see that shaking out? I, I think permissioned DeFi is going to be much bigger, like orders of magnitude bigger. Hmm. 
Um, I Ben, Ben, can you define permission DeFi versus like permissionless? And then, and then, I, and then I'd cut you off there. No, de- definitely. I mean, look, I I think that I I define permissioned DeFi as uh, you know everyone interacting with a pool or contract uh, has been has gone through KYC AML and effectively has a compliance you know uh, credentials in their wallet that you know, proves that they're a credited investor, qualified purchaser, um, and has other metadata associated with where they live um, and, and their activity on chain. So I, you know, I, I kind of imagine a state of the world where, you know, JP Morgan is going to fork compound and say, hey, only people that have, you know, a certain NFT in their wallet can interact with, with our money market, with the JP Morgan money market. And uh, that that's kind of how I define permissioned DeFi. Uh, and there's some stuff that's like quasi permissionless, quasi permissioned, but that's you know what I just mentioned is probably the most the most extreme view of it. Huh. So do you think that there will be like almost the user flow here is uh, there'll be a an on chain KYC AML provider? And you'll go through that. They'll basically drop a KYC AML like token in your wallet. If you have the token in your wallet, you'll be able to access the KYC AML version. Uh, of exactly. Uniswap. There are maybe five to ten teams today mm-hmm. building that you know compliance passport, so to speak. And the way I see it is, you know, maybe there's one pool that says only only people only qualified purchasers from the U.S. and the EU can interact with this Uniswap pool. And maybe there's another one that's, you know only for accredited investors or eligible contract participants, or you have to have a certain net worth on chain. And so I think ultimately, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have your credentials in your wallet and then you'll be able to interact openly with these, with contracts and in the permissioned uh, DeFi space. Hmm. Can I ask a secondary question there, which is, um, will DeFi platforms have the relationships with the users or will CeFi and like, fintech and like the jp morgans of the world have the still i think cfi will I, I think cfi will will and the fintechs will have relationships directly with the users and uh i think about it almost as like a d to b to c distribution model so dow to business to consumer because uh, the way i look at it is and maybe you know uh curious if you guys how you guys see it as well but there have really only been like four to five million people, unique wallets that have interacted with DeFi to date. And I think it's a relatively self-selecting group that wants to go through the rigmarole of storing private keys and understanding gas prices and, um, you know, understanding bonding curves and so on and so forth. I, I think that the vast majority, I think CFI will effectively be user capture for all of DeFi uh, and, um ultimately like will be sophisticated enough to make the risk management decisions. So someone at, you know, uh, Revolut will decide which urine vault to deposit capital into. Uh, and the user themselves will be somewhat um, shielded from a lot of the risk management decision-making. Now, individual users that want to go through the process of interacting directly with DAOs, you know, are more than, you know, are, are more than welcome to or more than able to, I don't think that's going to change, but I just think that that uh, you know extra user capture step is going to ultimately be where the majority of uh, users come into DeFi. Hmm. What do you think? Um, 
maybe if we could return to the subject of like debt just for a second, like the analog in TradFi's, you debt kind of gets broken up into three different groups, right? There's debt at the consumer level, there's debt at the corporate level, and then there's debt at kind of the sovereign level. Um, so maybe we could like, I don't know how useful that analog really is going to be because maybe, maybe at the, at the consumer level, right. Th that's still going to just be get done through. Although honestly, I do think that's an opportunity for DeFi because it's so hard to get debt from like your bank, like to get a loan from your bank. It just sucks. And mostly that's really credit card debt when people are measuring consumer debt. But, um, but uh, one thing I'd love to get your your perspective on is where yield is generated in the form maybe of actually on, on the L1 level, like around ETH kind of staking as a as just a big source of yield. Like in in traditional capital markets, like the the perma the 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 enormous generator of yield really is government's desire to borrow, right? And really, it's like the U.S. government is like the biggest uh, borrower out there. So. Like, there's a really interesting opportunity for like yield generation around like e staking. Um, I'd be curious to see like what kind of opportunity. Like, I don't know how much you are looking into that, but how much is that an area of opportunity in terms of generating yield? Yeah, look, I I, I think it's a huge opportunity. I mean, ETH at a, as a two hundred billion dollar asset is going to be spitting off or is spitting off now ten to twenty billion dollars a year of staking rewards. That is a, a massive amount of wealth being distributed every year. Uh, so uh, I, I think the ability to lock in a fixed rate uh, and swap from you know floating to fixed on ETH staking is going to ultimately be one of the biggest, you know, I, I think one of the biggest financial products in DeFi. And I think you, you're going to be able to do it, you know, through CFI and also through DeFi. Uh, so if you have, you know, let's say you have STETH or CBE. You'll ultimately be able to sell off your future staking yield or lock in a rate. I mean, one, one actually example of this is, you know, let's say you have a hundred dollars worth of, of Ethereum to keep the math simple. So, you know, you, you would be expecting to earn, let's say like $5 in year one, $4 in year two, this future cash flow stream. Um, you know, imagine being able to, uh, sell off that cash flow stream and pull it forward to today or locking it or locking in a fixed rate. I think there's going to be a ton of demand for that, uh, you know, over the next couple of years. Mm. You're essentially securitizing the ETH staking yields. Exactly. Which and I'm assuming you then you get all these crazy derivatives markets on the securitization of the ETH staking yield. Cra crazy derivative yeah. markets. And because once you have that cash flow stream, you know, someone may be okay taking risk on like the first $3 a year, but anything above that, you know, maybe you sell that to a jun more junior tranche. And so I think you're going to see basically this yield gets securitized and bundled. And, and it's not only the staking yield, but it'll also be, you know, you can bifurcate and sell off just MEV or, or just fees or just, uh, just the core, um, uh, just the core, uh, uh, yield itself. So you can even get more gra more granular is what I imagine this world's going to ultimately look like. Mm. Are we just talking about building a yield curve? Is, is this what we're kind of <laughs> describing here, like a yield curve in crypto? I think to I think to to some extent, yeah. Mm. I, I think there's I think this will be ultimately like the benchmark rate for Ethereum. Uh, but I think this is very separate from the dollar borrowing market. Yeah, because I I don't know that many DAOs will ultimately want to borrow. ETH, uh, because ultimately, if you're borrowing an asset, you're short it. And most DAOs building are 
ostensibly bullish on ETH. Mm. And so I think like the li- liabilities will still ultimately be denominated in, in, in dollars. And this like interest rate swap market on Ethereum will come down to institutions and holders of ETH ultimately just wanting to lock in rates is, is my sense. Mm. That's a really interesting point. Um, do you, you, you were kind of talking about some of the different ways that you could lock in, you could separate like fees versus like MEV. Do you have, do you have an opinion on what the opportunity is uh, and what would almost be? Because the way that I would almost think about it is not even like, okay, if I have $100 worth of ETH, like this is the yield that I could get. Like, let's say you run a certain number of validators, basically. I would almost price it on like the yield that you could get on base, basically the amount of MEV that could be extracted from basically the block space that you have access to or the theoretical block space that you would be, you know, taking a like, does that, I mean, how, how do you kind of suss out different opportunities of like the different categories of maybe you can just focus on MEV because that's, it seems like that's a super important category. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a little bit, it's a little bit esoteric in the sense that, um, you know, you may want to, the way I think about it is like, you may just not want to make, if you're a validator, you may not want to make a bet on on what you'll earn from MEV, you know, over the next 10 years. Like you may just not want to play that game. So you may want to basically sell that future revenue stream to someone who does want to play that game. Um, you may just want certainty around that. So you can pull effectively pull forward those cash flows and uh, you know, and and kind of like bifurcate and and disaggregate these cash flows and send MEV to someone else. So I think that a lot of these products probably going to get built like on top of Lido or on top of other synthetic staking derivatives, maybe by the Lido team, maybe by, maybe by others in the space. And then to a certain extent in, in CFI. Mm. What if, if you had to guess um, at the, like we've covered kind of two big categories then like yield that gets pulled from, from basically from the Ethereum protocol or like, let's say other layer ones, right? Uh, we've talked about kind of DAOs, you know, DAOs issuing debt as another major source of debt. Do you see, are there any other like big buckets of uh, debt or potential borrowers or sources of yield that maybe we haven't covered? So I, back on like the debt borrowing concept and the concept of kind of, you know, back to the Porter Finance example, there's no reason that you know, people or companies couldn't, you know, issue debt on chain in the same way that Porter did. So if you have a basket of NFTs or, or governance tokens that don't necessarily like have, or aren't marginable on chain on the major money markets, you know, you could pledge them to a contract on that looks similar to Porter and set your max rate and your desired maturity and borrow against them. So, I mean, it is possible that there will be some consumer borrowing on chain, uh, you know, outside of Compound and, and Aave, again, because some people don't have the right collateral or may just want to borrow for five-year term. So I, I think that that will actually be a big bucket. And then, you know, in the, in the permissioned world, you may see, you know, you may see companies uh, or Crypto, crypto-related companies or companies outside of the crypto space also also use um, uh, architecture like that. Um, I, do you think in terms of like what might hit first, like just use the example of, let's say, Coinbase, right? Coinbase issued, you know, a billion and a half dollars worth of debt. I forget when exactly, sometime in the last year, I think it was probably in 2021. Um, you know, they chose to just tap capital markets, right? Like regular debt capital markets, basically to get that. I know there wasn't the counterfactual, right? There wasn't a way that they could have done that 
on chain or whatever. But one way that I kind of think about, like if you if you're set up as a company, like if you're a C corp and you're domiciled in the U.S., capital markets are like pretty efficient for you, basically. Um, whereas for a DAO. I don't even think you have the option, right? Like just look at the way that the maker has structured deals with like Huntington Valley Bank or, you know, there's a deal out there with Coinbase Institutional. It's a whole part of that proposal that's just dedicated to how maker, the entity as a DAO is going to interact with Coinbase Institutional, like let alone, you know, <laughs> JP Morgan or something, right? So I, it just kind of seems to me that in the, in the immediate term, DAOs, I mean, maybe just from the the mere fact that they have a weird organizational structure like they would tap a crypto native source of debt rather than regular capital markets i think yeah i, I think the first the first you know cohort of debt issuers are, are, are DAOs. exactly mm -hmm. exactly for the reason you you just mentioned ben can i get your can i get your take on the huntington valley bank thing actually and just like maker and i'm just curious to this is now uh, kind of getting away from the uh, thesis of the show per se but i just really want to get your take on maker and like the end game and they're, because they're talking a lot about real world assets, which obviously increased the, to the TAM of, of Maker. But like, I just want to get your take on the whole Maker. Yeah, thing. definitely. And congrats, by the way, on becoming a delegate. I think we, we voted for you. So um, oh, uh, the okay. So my, my overall view is like the end game proposed by Rune is way too complex, and complexity is like the death of most things, um, particularly in crypto. I I think you know of the two paths that MakerDAO could go on, you know, one being uh, Phoenix stance, like the most decentralized, like all, all kind of permissionless collateral, uh, no, no, you know, the max censorship resistance from any state actor, getting rid of USDC as quickly as possible. Like if that's path one, and then path two is, you know, like kind of giving a bear hug to TradFi in the real world and doing stuff like Huntington Valley Bank and this, this Coinbase uh, MIP, um, my view is they're actually both interesting, but doing a combination of the two is, is the worst possible path forward. Um, uh, it's one of those scenarios where if I could own a token in, in those two versions of MakerDAO, I think they both have a reasonable chance to build value and create something interesting. Um, but we can't, right? Because you can't fork die easily. You can't fork those network effects and so my sense is if I had to pick one, I'm of the mind that uh, I would pick the, the route of uh, going full bore into real world assets and just managing risk uh, around it. So managing counterparty risk, managing default risk. But um, I think that that is ultimately, you know, a much bigger TAM to, to chase. Does the, does the uh, biggest risk to that in your mind, like in bear hugging the real world assets, basically, uh, does the biggest risk there seem like to you, because uh, censorship resistance, because I feel like that's like what everyone on the forums are talking about, or does the, or is the bigger risk really like the inability to basically assess the risk of, uh, you know, like a hundred million dollar pool from a traditional lender yeah, or borrower? I, I think that there is, you know, when you start interacting with the real world, I think when things don't go well, and you have to enforce your rights and remedies as a lender, as a creditor, it's not clear like exactly what that looks like or how a bankruptcy judge would treat your claim. Uh, and most of these structural setups around real world assets are incredibly complex. So I, I think that um, that is a risk. Uh, 
And I also, you know, I, I think the, the, the risk that was, you know, triggered this whole shift in the community, the tornado cash sanctions in my mind, uh, are less of like, it, that doesn't feel like as likely of a risk that all of a sudden, you know, the, uh, all the USDC in MakerDAO is going to be frozen and DAI is going to be impaired. Um, ultimately, my sense is that regulators, like, I mean, that would be a big, you know, consumers would get hurt. Consumers will die. I think there would be more of an orderly unwind or, um, you know, some other scenario. But I, I ultimately think it's more about, hey, how do we as lenders, because that's ultimately what MakerDAO is. It's a lender to the to D3M and other real world assets, how do how does MakerDAO actually like enforce its its rights and remedies? Because that's it's it's like my my view is MakerDAO's kind of secret weapon is it has the lowest cost of capital of any lender, you know, out there because it's just software. It costs nothing to mint more DAI, um, so it should have a structural advantage over over other capital sources. And so I think like actually you know capitalizing on that requires being able to like go after borrowers that don't repay. And that's, that's the disconnect in my mind. What do you think uh, on that, on that maker that let's talk about the Coinbase and CoinShares issued their own proposal as well for basically how to, you know, leverage uh, assets that are sitting in the PSM. So one, you know, how, how much of a headwind do you see it being that because like if you rewind to one year ago, everyone was talking about yields in crypto, these really high yields in crypto. That was going to be a Trojan horse that was going to bring assets into our space. Now assets in our yields in TradFi are creeping up and are actually you know, above where they are in crypto. And it looks like they're going to stay that way as long as inflation keeps doing what it doing, it's doing. Do you view that as a headwind or are other companies basically like Maker are going to be like, hey, we actually have a decent amount on our balance sheet here. We actually want to import some of those yields over from TradFi and they'll view it as an opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that it's, um, I think that it could be an opportunity because I mean, the way I look at like Maker's business model is they can mint at 0% and lend it, lend out that capital at something greater than 0%. And that's ultimately, that spread is their, is their earnings. Um, it has, it, it's, it's been very interesting this year to see DeFi yields go from having a massive, premium to TradFi to now trading at a discount. Uh, so I, I think that that's been one of the drivers like in Maker, like for MakerDAO to actually like reach to, to higher sources of yield because putting capital on Aave and earning 50 bips, I think is, is, is less appealing. Um, and so that's, I, I think ultimately I, I view it as an opportunity if we can, you know, I think Maker should be able to thrive in an environment where, you know, 10-year yields are approaching 4%, two-year yields are at 4%. I mean, that is like a great environment to be a bank. Mm. What What do you think? I mean, maybe just to like, you know, uh, sort of wind down with just asking you some of the central questions of this season, which is, you know, how big of an unlock is the ability to borrow lend at a fixed rate in crypto, right? We've got, you know, probably V1 of a, of a you know, an interest rate market, which is you've got pretty good access to like variable rate type lending, which is good in some situations. But I think we outlined even earlier in this episode about what the logical limits of that are. Let's say we got widespread, the widespread ability to borrow lend at a fixed rate. How big of an unlock is that from a credit perspective for crypto? I, I think it's, I think it's, um, and I think it's enormous. Uh, I, my sense is, you know, it's, uh, 
it's the next, it could be the next big unlock in the space. I think, you know, kind of drawing an analogy to TradFi, um, to public companies, they tend to operate with, you know, 20 to 30% of their capital structure in debt. Mm. Uh, where, so if we kind of draw that analogy to crypto, I mean, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars of, of debt issuance on chain. And that doesn't really speak to, um, the growth that we expect to see in the space going forward and, uh, non crypto native debt issuance. So CFI players or TradFi players or, or, or consumers, uh, you know, borrowing using, um, using debt on chain. So I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's a huge opportunity and debt just makes more sense on chain in, in a lot of ways because you avoid, you know, these mass 300 page credit agreements and bond indentures. The cost of issuance is a lot lower, um, versus kind of going through investment banks and, uh, and, and clearing houses. And also, I mean, one of the big in, in finance, the only real departments that have grown at banks are uh, compliance and operations. Uh, headcounts generally moved lower in all other parts of financial institutions. And within operations, a lot of it's just settling, you know, calculating accrued interest, settling, um, settling trades. And, uh, you know, bank loans can take 20 days to settle if you're buying a loan from someone. So there's just this huge unlock with putting credit, you know, with tokenizing credit. Interest can accrue, you know, natively in the assets, similar to C tokens. Uh, and, uh, you, you, so there's no calculation required for interest and you have instant settlement and you, you know, eliminate all the legal docs and all the issuance costs. It can all move on chain and, you know, you have reduced bookkeeping, you have better transparency. So as I think about real world assets and as I think about, uh, you know, I think that debt is the most obvious place to start. Uh, it makes, it just makes a heck of a lot of sense. It's almost like leapfrogging what we have in, uh, you know, in, in TradFi today. Hmm. Do you think, um, we, you know, a lot of the, the booms that we've seen in crypto are either directly catalyzed by or, or coincide with some sort of innovation in token distribution. So that in 2017, that was ICOs, right? You basically instead of having to go out around and bootstrap this network of miners, right, to validate your network, they were like, oh, we're just going to sell pre-mined coins. That was a big innovation. And we kind of saw this enormous, uh, you know, boom back then. Then there was like the Binance, there was like the launch pad phase, which was, hey, uh, you can actually just launch this, you know, in a, you know, regulatorily compliant way, like directly on our exchanges until you'll have access to distribution. That was another big thing. Then there was yield farming, which is, hey, just come park your liquidity here, you'll get, you know, token X in return. So these like innovations in, uh, in distribution. Um, and that, you know, to your point, if you consider governance token equity, these are innovations in equity financing. So, but in, in our TradFog or TradFi analog, a lot of the times like these booms, like 2008, which is arguably way too big of a boom that was catalyzed by an innovation in debt financing, which was taking a bunch of mortgages you know, chopping them all up and then serving them, you know, to different, you know, you're diversifying the packet of mortgages and then you could sell them to a whole yeah. bunch of different investors. You could magic away risk. Um, and then it goes back all the way, like Milken kind of did it with junk bonds in the 19, but you can go back in history and see these like debt sort of booms. So I guess my question to you is, do you ever see, like, let's say we do get this, uh, you know, fixed income unlock uh, and DAOs or whoever it is are able to issue 
debt capital markets in a crypto native way way more easily all these benefits get get realized do you ever see that catalyzing you know a potential bull run in in crypto or being a part of that story yeah wow i mean that's that's a really interesting like framework uh i i think it's i think it's um you know in some ways i don't know if this catalyzes the next unlock in crypto mm. but it will come at some point uh because it's only natural for uh, DAOs, which are effectively, you know, uh, companies on the blockchain to want to, you know, pay the least amount they need for, for financial capital. So it doesn't make like from first principles, I think being an, having an all equity or all governance token capital structure and not issuing any debt, uh, is, is not optimized. And th from a technical standpoint, there really, there's really no reason that uh, debt issuance can't exist. I mean, it draws on mechanics that already, you know, are out there in DeFi. So I, I you know, it, it's a really interesting thought. Like, could this catalyze the next bull market? Um, I think it's possible. Uh, I think the product will exist. And it's just a matter of, um, it's just a matter of like, when, when will this, when will this come into play? Mm. You know, one thing, I'm, I'm not sure how necessary you view this to maybe, uh, realize that that vision, but you know, a lot of the there have been at various different times of financial markets people that were very comfortable with taking an enormous amount of risk in crypto. Our version of that is like what you'd call like degens, right? People just aped into these farms, no understanding. You know, they would like kind of talk to a buddy, like, "Hey, is this like legit?" And then you'd go put a bunch of capital at work and try to like farm the yields before it rugged. Uh, and that is, and honestly, like. Some some pretty institutional players have made a lot of money doing that. Um, you know, you know a lot of these names. But if you go back in time, right, there was another form of risk that seemed really crazy at the time, which was basically what like Soros and Druckenmiller used to do. I mean, people didn't understand that at one point, like leveraging up and then taking bets against entities as big as the Bank of England, right? Or whatever, they, they, when they broke the Bank of England. And there were there was a different type of like, savage out there in the market who is willing to lever up, take huge positions in really liquid markets. That's just a different type of risk taker. I wonder, do you, do you think we need kind of a different to your, your idea of product market fit? I feel like in crypto, you're never going to get it right unless you allow for like, how are speculators going to make money off this? And what it seems to me is we need a different type of speculator, one that almost harkens back to those like big levered up speculators in debt markets. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, like I, I think that, you know, there's a hot ball of capital and stable coins that's hunting every day for the highest yield. And it's that's it's an incredibly competitive zero sum uh, endeavor. And so if there is uh, if there is a Dow issue debt that uh, from a risk adjusted standpoint uh, is attractive and it has has an attractive interest rate and attractive structure like capital will buy that. Like, I think that the world loves yield. And like, we learned that in the past cycle in crypto that a lot of the yield was just denominated in governance tokens, but the world loves US dollar denominated yield. And I think a lot of the existing, a lot of the existing stablecoin holders are who have stablecoins on chain and are hunting for that will, would love to buy, you know, uh, you know, a Uniswap bond or a compound bond or, or, or a MakerDAO bond, which was also something that was, you know, recently thrown out in the forum. So I think it's going to come from existing capital. But then, you know, on top of that, 
I, I do sense that institutions are not going to be able to resist, uh, uh, you know, um, like, uh, some of these like great risk adjusted returns, you know, the Porter finance, uh, bond was 500% collateralized for six months. You can kind of, you can effectively price, uh, the probability of default based on the implied volatility of the RBN token. And, you know, my sense is it, it was pretty attractive. At least that was a conclusion that we came to. I imagine many others in TradFi are going to come to that conclusion because it's actually a different bet. Be, you know, investing in the uni governance token and building a thesis that token price go up is, is, is like a very different orthogonal idea to like, Will Uniswap generate enough cash flow in the next 30 days to repay me so I can earn an 8% return? Like it's, it's much, it's, you don't have to believe in the growth of crypto markets to believe that, you know, a, a, a properly structured uh, product like that can make you money. And so that's where I think, you know, you maybe start mm. to see these crossover funds or credit funds. Ben, do you think that that is the, um, I mean, I, we're always looking for the institutional unlock, right? But like one thing that you haven't seen as quickly as people maybe like every year, there's always like, oh, the institutions are coming, right? And like, obviously some institutions have come in, but like maybe not that quickly. One of the reasons might be because like they're just kind of taking potshot bets or they don't feel good about taking potshot bets on like whether or not the uni tokens going up. But if really this just comes down to a, a model on like uni's cash flow and everything's entirely transparent, you could see the credit institutions uh, actually come in faster than the, like the equity focused institutions. I'm curious if you think that that is how things could play out. Yeah. It's funny you ask, cause I, we, a couple of recent conversations I've had with institutions, uh, credit funds in the space that are, you know, looking to, I mean, they, they started the, these initiatives internally last year when, when yields are, were higher, but they were saying, Hey, how, can, can we lend to a DAO? How do we lend to a DAO? How do we lend to a, a protocol I'm like, look, it's it's not possible because you're going to want to sign a credit agreement. There's no one working for the DAO that can necessarily be a signatory or it's complex and you're not going to really be able to easily do KYC AML. So I know there is there is capital that's you know looking to access fixed income like returns in crypto uh, because I've seen them floating around the space. Now, it's a question of... Uh, how big that, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a ton of capital in private credit funds that are hunting for yield. And there, I, I think it will be kind of proving out uh, like default rates and what you can earn on these products initially. But then I think, and I think with most things in crypto, retail, like the, the first movers are retail investors. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be stable coin holders first. And then Maybe once you see a little bit more of a, a proven track record, you see default rates, you see some DAOs start to repay their loans and issue new debt, then I think you start to attract attract the institutions. Mm. It's almost like in the same way mm. that some of the earliest adopters of crypto on an institutional standpoint were FX traders because they're kind of just like, I don't really care what the underlying is. Like I, I just care about you know, extracting spreads or whatever. I feel like this this is maybe the next step of that, right? Which is like, I don't need to believe that, you know, XYZ is the protocol of the future. Like, I just need to be able to underwrite that I'm going to get my principal back. And I that could be interesting, you know? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, like, what else is, I mean, stable coins are bonds. 
Like if you own USDC, you're loaning money to Circle at zero percent, and, right. and you know, you're taking you know you're taking their counterparty risk. And same with Tether, and same with BUSD, and so you know, and a lot of institutions hold stable coins today. And so if you're willing to hold a fiat-backed stablecoin at zero percent, uh, why wouldn't you be willing to buy uh, a fiat-denominated bond at something greater than that? Now there is like liquidity and implied default risk, but it's less of a jump than maybe it's not as big of a jump as as uh, you know we may think it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's I I wonder even at the current time. Like even even the maker proposal for between Coinbase, uh, the Coinbase made, like really made me think because I it, it took me a little while to dig into like why, how were they able to not unwrap USDC for that to work, and then it was like okay, well there's a there's center the consortium and they have this revenue share agreement, and then it depends on where the USDC is custodied, and there's some sort of rev split, so. Basically, this is more of like Coinbase sharing rewards that they were already getting with Maker, and that's why they could keep it on that. But it just made me think, you know, it kind of was like, what, Circle's really generating a staggering amount of money um, on this. And I have to imagine that, like, <laughs> people are looking at that and being like, wait a second, dude. <laughs> like, I want to get in on this. You know, I wonder how many competitors there are either realizing this uh, or, or, or cropping up their own solutions at the current time. Because, yeah, I don't think... I don't think um, it's, they're going to be allowed to just own this use case as the blue chip stable indefinitely, but we'll see. Yeah, like if 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 we used like CUSDC or some rebasing stablecoin as as our stablecoin, like and everyone settled in that, I think that would probably make more sense because uh, like it would allow users to recapture more of that yield. But I think there's such like a shelling point and so much inertia around just using USDC zero percent USDC you know, unwrapped USDC as, as, as like kind of the medium of exchange in DeFi that maybe that never changes. And like, in the meantime, Circle's making an absolute center, the center JV is making an absolute, absolute killing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still the, the biggest businesses in crypto are the ones that move assets from the real world into crypto. And it like was exchanges. And then in a way, that's really what Circle does. They import assets, which are dollars from the real world into crypto so mm-hmm. for me it's undefeated uh ben this has been just a ton of fun my man uh seriously giving us a lot to think about um i, got, I gotta plug you at parify like if folks want to figure out more about like you and what you do at parify or follow you or anything like what's the best way to do it so i'm, I'm unique in the space in that um i'm read only on twitter uh so you can find me i'll give you my email address uh ben.foreman at parify.com well, you can follow us man. at Ben. Ben, why don't you? I always go to Twitter. tag you and like nice. uh, tag you and things on Twitter. And why don't you have a Twitter? Or I know you do have a Twitter, but like you're read only. You know, I that KKR I just, way. Um, the KKR way just says stuck. You know, I don't know. It's a good like stuck. I, <laughs> I you know I just like I've just kept on putting off signing up for it, and you know I. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I should have one. Maybe I'll get well one so far, ben. Maybe I'm an anon on Twitter. It served um, you well. <laughs> yeah, it's an event. Well, yeah, this was a blast. I echo what Mike said. Thanks cool. thanks again for coming on, Ben. Yeah, thank, yeah. thanks a lot for, for having me on. Really appreciate it. This was fun. Cheers, guys. Thanks. All right. Big interview. That was a really good one with Ben. That was. That was. That's, a, that's just one of my favorite people. He's like very articulate and very, uh, very thoughtful thinker on where DeFi is headed. And I feel like I like thoughtful thinkers. 
I like thoughtful thinkers, you know? The thoughtful thinkers, we like them. Yeah. Uh, very thoughtful Beats thinker. the hell out of unthoughtful thinkers. I'll tell you like, that. Beats the hell. Like yourself, I'm stuck with you every day. So I've, it's some, somehow I've been able to deal with it. So You know what? Ben, ben deserves an extra shout out because I ran – you know, this thesis by a bunch of people and he was really helpful in the beginning, uh, you know, just like helping sound all of this out. And I think it came through one. I think one of the reasons I like this interview is that it just brought together in a supernatural way, a whole bunch of different themes, you know, that we, that we've been talking about. Um, here's what I thought was cool from this episode is, uh, is the aspect of programmability on a loan from, from before, uh, the programmability on both sides of the loan. So the programmability, in terms of uh, having a smart co- smart contract, basically be able to be ta- uh, loan using a smart contract to, against the protocol's revenue. That's like before the loan happens, basically, um, and like that's a really interesting distru- uh, way to structure it. And then after a loan, or like on the other side of the loan, I guess I would call it uh, the ability to basically program into the loan. Um, like you can only use it for like these three things, which we talked about on two episodes ago, right, with Teddy. And with Sid. Um, so I think like, I don't know, sometimes it's easy to lose track of like what, what really, like how crazy it is, how crazy these smart contracts are and how, how, how cool it is, like what, what we're building here. And um, just this idea of like being able to program all the stuff into the smart contract uh, and into the loan makes it quite interesting, I think. It, it brings it back to also Teddy's kind of idea that a lot of this is about capital efficiency, because what you're basically doing is removing layers of risk. And it's much better from the standpoint of a borrower. Like try to try to think of yourself in a new in it when the Overton window has shifted towards where bar once you lend someone capital, you're used to just getting a programmatic stream of income based on top line sales instead of oh yeah, you get like paid back in increments of like you know every month or every quarter, and then you have no transparency into the process other than whether or not your income comes. And then at the end, you get your principal back. It's just, yeah. for, I mean, to me, it, it feels very obvious. It will feel very obvious as well once that Overton window shifts, the the pure transparency that, that DeFi gives you. And what that should lead to is a you're underwriting less risk. So you, it should be more capital efficient in general. Yeah. What did you think of that idea near the end talking about Maybe it maybe it's not the institutional investor of equities who comes in and basically buys up our bags and prices go up. That's why everyone is excited about the institutions coming in. But really, it might be the credit folks, the the institutional credit side of things, who just looks at this and says, "Oh, I can underwrite this." What do What did you think of that? I re- I really like that idea because then you need pe- you need people. I I like the idea of you get onboarded to crypto. Yeah. Some people are like these believers and missionaries, but oftentimes I think it's a much better incentive structure. If you can find someone, you know, a group of people who find a way to make money in this space, especially in the beginning before you have time to get bought in and like really integrate yourself in the community. So I think there was a reason, like we kind of talked about why FX traders adopted crypto very early because they didn't get all these, they get all harangued up on "Eh, this looks so different and weird. They were just like, I understand this looks like, a market that I'm familiar with and I know that I could make money here. And I think in the same way that, you know, debt investors are just like, I know how to underwrite risk. So underwriting yeah. risk in market X is not that different from underwriting risk in market Y, at least once I have my framework. So yeah, I yeah. thought that was extremely interesting. I've been thinking about this idea recently of um, people only come into crypto once they see something that's re- very recognizable to them. And they're like, 
they, yeah. they already have a mental model for it and they're like, oh, this, like, oh, this looks like that thing that I know. Okay, now I can come in, right? And so it's, uh, you, you saw it with the FX traders, like you mentioned, like I'll, I'll use you as an example. I was remember like we yeah. talk about crypto and then you're yeah, like, I, I mean, this was the, you know, we, you fell for the wrong thing, I will say, but like, you were like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like enterprise is putting their, <laughs> their, their supply chains on the supply blockchain. Chain. Like, oh, I get this. Okay. Like, uh, okay. I'm coming in. And then, and then you get pulled in. And, um, I just think that, that, that is like how everyone gets pulled in. And like, you just, you need the thing like artists didn't like crypto stuff. And then they saw NFTs. They're like, oh, I, like I see this. Okay. And, um, I think the credit folks will get pulled in when this stuff, the institutional credit folks will get pulled in when they can see this and be like, oh, like that model and like underwriting looks like something that I understand. Okay. I'm coming in. Yeah. Someone, I think it was probably Raul Paul who said this on something. I, he's like, there's no silver bullet for what works with everyone. I mean, we learned this right with the thesis of BlockWorks in general. Like it's not really a language problem. It's just, you got to get the ideas out there. There have to be enough good ideas. And someone, I, I agree exactly with what you just described. They will say, oh, this thing is kind of like this other thing that I know. Like, let me dig in a little bit. And oftentimes you can be wrong about what that first surface level similarity is, but then you're already kind of bought in and interested. So yeah. in total agreement with you there. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm, you know, we didn't actually call this out on the interview, but it's funny that we ended the interview with Sid and Teddy and <laughs> Teddy predicted. It's like, I think the thing that might bring us down on the next bull cycle is debt that's <laughs> collateralized with protocol, like basically governance tokens. And Ben's like, yeah, very bullish on that. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I, um, I, I do think one thing people might not give, I don't mean to say Ben does, I'm, Ben's a very sophisticated investor, but you know, I, I wonder if there are logical limits on what just makes good collateral in general. And I do think it would be worth looking throughout history of like, you, you could find times when you collateralize debt with, um, with equity and that, that hasn't typically ended very well. But I think Alan from Yield Protocol basically said it correctly is that that's kind of just like unsecured lending. And there's no yeah. such thing as a bad loan. There's just a bad rate. So I think it's, there probably has to be hmm. at least one one cycle of uh, maybe not pricing risk correctly before we figure that out. But it's probably some weird, yeah, like pseudo un, uncollateralized yeah. loan or like an uncollateralized loan with a call option attached to it. What is the like, market? What is fun. the market like for like weird collateral? Have you ever looked into the market for weird collateral? Like, let's say, um, I have not talking to some talking to someone earlier today. They've got a bunch of horses. Like, if you can, <laughs> and like horses are valuable, right? Like, let's say a horse is like fifty bucks. Do I, do or, I know this person, dude? Who 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 are you chatting with that has a bunch of? You can tell me tell offline. You. Off the record, <laughs> off the record, horse conversation. Is this part of uh, the dowry that uh, you're getting with Dana? <laughs> the horses. <laughs> so this person's got like, you know, like let's say ten horses. Each horse is like fifty k, five hundred k. Moving past that, moving past that, five hundred k for the horses. Can you use five hundred k? Can the horses be five hundred k of collateral? Probably. I guess. I mean, point. I guess. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I guess if it was me and someone was posting 500k in collateral for horses, you'd have to give some big discount because it was like, okay, if worst comes to worst, I'd love to not receive physical delivery on $500,000 worth of horses because I would then have to figure out how to like sell those horses <laughs> to a rancher. So yeah, it would probably, but this is where their capital efficiency comes yeah. into play, right? Where I guess if there was an ultra liquid horse market of, you know, people that would just come over to my 
apartment and or, or if I, like there was, you know, big stables local to New York where I could like, oh, yeah, like I'll accept my horses here. and I'm just going to put them over here. And then I know there's a service where he can connect. But I you know that's not how it works. So what I wouldn't accept it at face value to have to take a super big discount, yeah. you know, probably like 200K or 150K yeah. worth of value because I don't know what the hell I would do mm. with the horses. And by the way, the that's dowry is not 10 horses. It's just one horse for the dowry. Just one horse. <laughs> Hey, buddy, don't sell yourself short. Um, okay, <laughs> the, the last thing—the last thing that I thought was interesting too was, I mean, talking about. I'm glad. I was glad to hear that you know from someone who was actually involved with the Porter Finance Ribbon Dow uh, convert mm-hmm. debt issuance that the Express one of the, the, the whole Express point of it was to get liquidity on their treasury without necessarily selling any more ribbon tokens. Right, because that was something that we theorized. That was probably the reason behind it. So it was interesting to hear that that actually was the driver. And again, constant theme throughout this season. Ben seemed very interested in it. Like was like, yeah, debt DAOs will add debt financing to the mix. Question is just when. And I do think yeah. it's it's right to also question how that's going to work from a regulatory perspective as well. Yeah, good. Yeah, cool. Good up. We got yeah, one more, huh? Good up. One more, baby. Um, should we keep it a surprise or should we announce who's going to be on the episode? Surprise. You got to hit that subscribe button. This one's going to be a banger though. This one, I'm hyped for this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. this one's going to be a blast. So it's, yeah. it's the season finale. So tune in. Um, it's going to be a good one worth your time. I promise. If you guys have ideas on season two, Mike and I have started thinking about season two and what that looks like. So you guys should tweet at us and let us know what you think some themes or thesis should be for season two. We have some ideas we want to hear from you. So tweet at us. You should also rate and review this, uh, the show if you haven't already. Uh, and also, we got a couple requests to sponsor season two. So if you are a company and you are looking to sponsor season two, uh, just shoot me a DM on Twitter. We, we got you. So Mike, enjoy the rest of your day, partner. And... Uh, See you on the other side. Peace, buddy.